You are now listening to Music Legends with your host, Chili Willie. What's up, everybody? Chili Willie here, aka Long Time No See. And today I'm sitting on down to record the very last episode of Music Legends Season 2, Miles Davis. Man, it has been an absolute journey. And that's an understatement. And so, if you'll bear with me for a few minutes, I want to tell you where that journey began for me. Flashback to early 2020, before all the craziness. It was early, 7 a.m. We had just gotten like a foot of snow. And there I was, driving through it. The roads were barely plowed. And when they were, it was still a game of trying not to drive on the black ice. And to make things even sketchier, I was transporting eight baby goats. It's a long story. But before I got on the road that day, I decided to turn on Miles Davis's Kind of Blue, an album that had always calmed me down no matter the situation, because I knew my heart would be pounding on this dreaded 15-minute drive. I didn't think too much about Miles Davis at that point, just that maybe I could do a Music Legends episode on him at some point. So I threw on Kind of Blue, and I threw the truck in four-wheel drive, headed out into the winter wonderland. Not five minutes in, I started slipping. My heart was nearing my throat and my stomach was dropping below my knees. In the moment, the controlled bliss of Kind of Blue was the only thing keeping me going. Then I hit a yellow light. I pressed the brake, and I felt like time moved in slow motion. I hyper-focused on the music and tried my hardest to keep my cool. I turned the wheel just a tiny bit and tried to make sure not to overcorrect when I started fishtailing. If I turned the wheel just a hair harder, I would have gone over the median and into oncoming traffic. But me and the goats were fine that day, and for whatever reason, guess I have Miles Davis to thank for that. When I look back at it, I think it was that week that I started researching Miles Davis for the podcast. I couldn't stop thinking about that moment. The act of keeping calm under pressure. Something that I've had trouble with for as long as I can remember. I wanted to know what exactly it was about Miles Davis and the music he made that gave such a sense of calm. And why he became synonymous with cool. And then I started thinking, what even is cool? As my research continued, I started going deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole of Miles Davis. And I learned that the life Miles Davis led was very different than the calm sensation I still feel whenever listening to Miles Davis's earlier music. I also started to notice a pattern. It seemed as though Miles Davis's personal life mirrored his incredibly prolific and ever-changing discography. He kept pushing the limits of his chaotic personal life, just as he kept pushing the boundaries of music. Making this season of Music Legends has been 
a five-year journey for me. Not only a journey through the life and legend of Miles Davis, but a journey through my own life and a journey through jazz, 20th century culture, and what it means for something or someone to be cool. Just the other day, I was listening to one of my favorite current jazz musicians, Melissa Eldana. She's a Chilean tenor sax player whose melodies meander and drift, almost like a Coltrane line. Sometimes it's hard to tell exactly where her music is going. There's an unexpected nature to her music that leaves me on the edge of my seat. There's an unexpected nature to the music of Miles Davis, too. I think it has to do with the nature of modal jazz in general. Maybe that feeling of cool we get comes from the spontaneity in the playing. But what happens when even modal jazz becomes limiting? Well, that's when you get to the extreme dissonant anxiety-producing sounds of free jazz. That feeling of being on the edge of your seat is still there, that's for sure. But that cool, that cool feeling is gone. It's overwhelmed by chaos. So then maybe it's directly related to the player. We've seen Miles Davis experiment in free jazz with Bitches Brew and in the early 70s. And when I listened to this, that cool feeling is still somehow there. The more I listen to the music of Miles Davis, the more I hear the extremes in everything he did. Sometimes in small increments, but still present. A little anxiety in the calmest line. A little cool in the most intense. I hear him pushing the boundaries and testing new ideas. This was Miles Davis's gift, but it was also his curse. The hot and the cold, cool and obnoxious, the good and evil, and it all slowly seeped into every aspect of his life. Chaos broke out, leaving those close to him forced to endure it, and the rest of the world to enjoy it. And so what happens when chaos continues, almost systematically? The chaos turns to repetition, and this is where Miles stood, with a fistful of overplayed hands, in the toxic deck of cards that was his mental health. And the only truly unexpected card he had left in that deck to pull was to change for the better. Sometimes easier said than done. So stay with me as we lift up and look behind the last legend of Miles Davis.
felt like he was 25 again. Mostly because he felt good playing music again, but he sure as hell didn't look like he was 25 anymore. I mean, he didn't look bad either, it's just that after coming back home to Manhattan after his detox in Connecticut, he decided to stop while he was ahead, which according to Miles Davis, that means quitting every drug except for one of the worst, alcohol. To Miles, drinking and playing music went together like peanut butter and jelly, milk and cookies, Lennon and McCartney, you get the point. And it is truly astonishing how the human mind will use absolutely any means it sees fit to get the drug that it has become physically dependent on. Miles woke up every morning reinvigorated and went to bed once again hoping to change. Anytime Cicely was away for work, Miles went quote-unquote a little wild with alcohol. He would throw parties in their apartment, black out, and who knows what would happen after that. The maid began to see certain signs of the parties Miles had been having, and finally told Cicely. Cicely and Miles' relationship was never the same after that. It turned sour, and she filed for divorce the following year. Either Miles fell back in love with music, or it just became his new addiction, because he felt like he could do anything. Miles may have thought that because he had the courage to pick up his horn again, it would give him more courage in other areas of his life. But in reality, it just kept fueling his ego. As he had these parties behind his wife's back, he again felt like he could do anything. But the reality is, recovery isn't just about making one all-encompassing decision, an end-all be-all decision. Recovery is making the best decision you can in every moment. But what really happened when Miles came out of retirement is that the world around him and the people he chose to surround himself with kept feeding his ego once again. And so, of course, for Miles, his recovery got even messier. When Miles and Cicely got divorced, he fell back into drinking even harder. Miles was now 56 years old, and his body simply couldn't keep up with the life of a 20-something he tried so desperately to keep living. One night, he casually blacked out, and when he woke up, he couldn't even move his hand. And Cicely wasn't coming back home to take care of him either. He was alone, back to square one. But he learned a lesson, which was, go to rehab. And it was at rehab where, after intense examination, he came to find out he'd had a stroke, which is what left his hand temporarily paralyzed that night. And that wasn't even the worst of his health problems. The doctors also told him he'd need a full hip replacement surgery. It was a simple twist of fate. Nonetheless, a wake-up call that could have easily stopped him from ever playing the trumpet again. So, once again he began his journey towards sobriety, and this time more determined, and understanding of the consequences. As soon as he was physically able to play the trumpet, he set four dates for Europe. He'd already released two records after his return to music, but now he was ready to commit to the ultimate challenge, a tour abroad. Starting with the first tour, we were in a different city or a different country every single day. Today's show starts at 8 o'clock. 
we get back to the hotel by midnight. After that, he wants to paint. He would just pick up whatever writing device he had and start to draw. No matter how musically inspired you are, touring is not an easy task. Think constant travel for months with no break. Miles had always used hard drugs and alcohol to cope with this, but not this time. Miles had found a new way to cope and a new perspective. A few months prior to his Europe tour while recuperating from his hip replacement surgery, Miles met 34-year-old sculptor Joe Gelbert. They met in the elevator of their apartment building. Miles had heard she was a sculptor, an artist, and he was absolutely fascinated. Miles had been sketching, doodling, and painting, all of the melodies constantly streaming through his head. It felt therapeutic for Miles. He would just put a pen or brush down on the paper or canvas and let his thoughts run wild, let his hand naturally run across the canvas without thinking. Miles had always seen similarities between musical art and visual art. He spoke about this in an interview a few years later. So what I wanted to say is what when you make a wrong line. A wrong line. Uh, does it feel with you like when you're drawing like the same as in music, the balance between the line and the notes or you hear what? it like that? The more the more is that line. Yeah, on drawing. When I make a wrong line. Yeah. The line isn't wrong until you after you put the next one down. Music is the same way. The sound, you don't make bad notes. The, 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 other, the note next to the, the one that you think is bad corrects the one in front. The right. only way you can do that is by experience. The only way you can take a, a line that you didn't mean to draw is to draw every day. You, you can be able to say, well, I'll put this in. It isn't too far away from the thing. Or maybe change colors. It's just the same way of composition. It's the same way. I hear, I hear, if we're playing in a mode, and the mode is all the white keys on the piano, and I hear um, maybe one of the musicians struggling to, to stay in the, in the mode, I'll put down a sound on the OBX and lock it in, and he can play outside of the mode, you know? And then you keep, it'll keep the, the uh, other notes from being too harsh to listen to if I'm trying to give it to you, you know? This new revelation was something that only came after spending more time with Joe Gelbert. As a friendship would develop between Miles and Joe, they would pop in and out of each other's apartments, tweaking collaborative paintings and adding something new every day. And just as their paintings became more complex by the day, so did their relationship. Miles kept giving her random projects to help him with, or helping him pick out an outfit for an upcoming show. It seemed like any time the two were in the same room, love filled the air. Throughout Miles' life, love would drench the air that surrounded him, but 
he would never truly breathe it all in. Miles has been quoted saying, People just stop being interested. You know what I mean? They go so far, and then they stop. There's no more. Somehow, I'm never with a woman more than seven years. Some don't go longer than a few minutes. When the music stops, I'm done and need to move on. When love fills the air, in order to truly breathe it in, you've got to take a leap of faith and grasp it. Sometimes, you'll end up grasping an air, but maybe, just maybe, you'll end up catching something beautiful. And I believe, at that time, that's just what Miles did. He went all in. He left all else behind and completely gave in to love. It was around this time, I believe, he went through a major personal transformation. He gained that new perspective on music and life. Unfortunately, there were other, darker reasons that contributed to this shift in perspective. His sickle cell anemia was catching up to him, which only aggravated his hip problems. Frankly, Miles knew his health was declining, and he was living on borrowed time. Yet, he also knew he still had so much more to share with the world. As far as he was concerned, he was just getting started. And it was now or never. So, fully at peace with himself and the world, he embarked on one last world tour. For Miles Davis's entire career, he'd been a recluse, hardly talked at shows, and never talked to the press. Yet, here he was, sitting on a cozy couch in Munich, talking to a reporter with three cameras buzzing around his head. We have a special opportunity this time again to be with one of the masters of the music in this century. Everybody knows this gentleman. He's been around for so many years and uh, one of the most important personalities of the music in this century. We're talking about Mr. Miles Davis. Mr. Davis, may I ask you something? How do you feel about hearing so much uh, positive things about what you're doing, so much compliments, almost four decades, everything? <laughs> Magazines, radio, TV, four decades. The genius, the master. You mean the now artist. they're doing it? <laughs> now. It doesn't bother me because, you know, I, I didn't start off to play music for that reason, you know, to, uh, you know, like be in a contest or something like the best this and the best that. I know who to pick for certain styles. He said yes to almost every reporter who begged him for an interview. And he did an interview or talk show in every different city on this tour. But there was one thing that he absolutely did not want to do. He did not want to play any of his classic hits. Hell, he didn't even want to play anything that hadn't come out in the past year. In other words, the only thing he did want to play was his new material. The fans weren't as mad about this as you might think. First of all, he still had quite a lot of material to choose from. In that past year, he'd been working non-stop, whether in the art studio or the recording studio. He had several new albums coming out, including the Grammy-winning Tutu, which was Miles' first time ever working with modern recording equipment. Think about this for a minute. The dude had been recording for 30 years, 
and at this point, the technology was changing fast. But it didn't phase him one bit. He wasn't in there playing ageist. In fact, he was thriving, sitting in the booth, tinkering with the electronic drum pads and synthesizers like he grew up with them. On top of the modern jazz equipment, Tutu was supposed to be a collaboration with Prince. That's right, not the one from England, the fellow music legend Prince. Miles was actually a big fan, but something about the collaborative album just didn't feel right. So he decided to go in a different direction with the album, and has never officially released many of the songs he worked on with Prince at the time. I will say, I personally really wish these got an official release, and maybe they will at some point in the future. Luckily, I was able to find a track on SoundCloud, which I absolutely will be putting in the show notes for your listening pleasure. Alas, Miles was back and better than ever. For what, like the hundredth time now? seemed like each decade, Miles single-handedly changed the shape of jazz. But this time, it seemed like Miles himself had changed. It was like a completely new person had emerged with the new decade. Once he met Joe Gelbert, it was as if he'd completely forgotten who he was. In truth, it wasn't so much that he'd forgotten who he was, but why he was. It had taken decades for him to come to terms with the fear and the pressure he'd put on himself to keep making music. And it took him even longer to truly recognize the drug habits he'd become dependent on were caused by that fear. Now, when he woke up every morning, instead of numbing his creativity with booze and blow, he would simply look in the mirror and ask himself why. Every morning, he had a new reason. Every day on tour, he'd wake up early in the morning and follow his creativity with the pen on paper straight into the evening, where he would follow it with the notes that came through his horn. Even after the tour, he continued the same process and just put the blinders on. It worked for the most part. Throughout the 1980s, Miles was a pure workhorse, touring, painting, recording nonstop. However, he couldn't see anything going on in his life except for the things right in front of him. By 1990, Miles' health started getting in the way and doling his focus. His body was beginning to fail. There's no doubt about that. And treating it like a bag of potatoes in a McDonald's kitchen for half a century, well, that didn't help either. He was aggravated. He could never quite get the sound he wanted to and would hobble around the stage trying to find it. Regardless, Miles still wasn't ready to rest. In fact, he would snap at anyone who came close to bringing up the subject. I'll rest when I'm dead. In reality, there was no telling when that rest would come. His health was declining and fast. So, he began to live like every day was his last. If this was your last day on Earth, think about it for a second. What would you do? How would you spend it? Well, 
you might think of some pretty crazy stuff. But chances are, you would also want to spend some quality time with your family and friends. In Miles' case, he probably already did all that crazy stuff you were thinking. So he was mostly thinking about spending quality time with his family and friends. The sad truth was, Miles barely even knew his children. And friends? Well, Miles had turned most of them into enemies a long time ago. Miles had a special kind of hatred for Quincy Jones. A hatred fueled by jealousy, yet a hatred Jones himself never quite understood. So when Miles reached out, he was surprised. Surprised and delighted. Quincy had been trying to rekindle a relationship with Miles for 15 years. Maybe Miles had finally let go of some of his ego, some of that hatred, or Maybe Quincy was just an easy target, someone he knew would answer the phone. No matter what made him dial Quincy on that phone, he was on the line right now, wanting to know just one thing, if they could play a show together. Miles quietly listened to Quincy's proposal, like a parent listening to their child pleading to stay the night at a friend's house on a Friday. Miles probably let the pleading drag on a little bit too long. He finally said it, the words Quincy and the world had been waiting for for 15 years. Okay, motherfucker, I'll do it. In the days after his conversation with Quincy Jones, the idea of a concert with friends began to grow on Miles. He had a realization that day. If he wanted to rekindle any of his relationships from the past, it was most likely going to start with a phone call. Within a few months, Miles had made a lot more phone calls. And mostly everyone was pleasantly surprised to hear Miles' voice. Most of them. Of course, there were a few that led to cursing fits and angered hang-ups, but most everyone he called was not just willing, but happy to play a show with Miles. So when the time came to play the Montreux Festival with Quincy Jones, Miles was surrounded by not just fans, but genuine friends. Quincy conducted two big bands, the Gil Evans Orchestra and the George Grunt's Concert Jazz Band. Alongside Miles, they played a very special set. A set specifically created by Miles for the fans. For the first time ever, he played songs from his past, from almost every decade of his career. Years later, when Quincy Jones was asked about the legendary show, he said, quote, To see him at 65 years old trying to recreate his 25-year-old self was just amazing, man. Yeah, I love him, man. It just makes my soul smile. End quote. Miles rolled like this for a while, calling people from his past, inspiring a few shows billed as The Miles and Friends, with guest performances by musicians from throughout his career, including John McLaughlin and Herbie Hancock.
As much as Miles finally seemed at peace with the world, he very much wasn't. He was frustrated that his body wouldn't let him play like it used to, and still somewhat closed off to the world. He lived that way for most of his life, and now it had become kind of like a mental souvenir. It wasn't just a few mental souvenirs left over from his past that made him increasingly agitated, but the medication he was currently on. The ones the doctor prescribed, they were for the pain. The doctors told him that they would help him play, so of course he took them. And of course, they didn't help him play. In fact, they probably made him worse. It was around this time where Miles started getting violent again, mostly towards his partner, Joe Gelbert. She had this to say about that time in her life. Quote, A lot of the violence in the last year was due to a lot of medication that he was taking. There was no question that in the last year of his life he was dying, and he knew it. His choice in the last year of his life was to almost accelerate the process because he worked tremendously. He was painting a lot. He did this the whole tour. He was recording, so he made almost a conscious choice to live his life full pressure until it was no longer possible. He orchestrated the last year of his life to be full steam ahead, but it took a lot of painkillers and medication that affected his mind and his emotions and consequently became very violent and volatile. A little psychotic at times, but it was my choice. There was no way I was going to spend the rest of my life with him. I owed him too much. I loved him." End quote. There's a common chord progression used almost everywhere throughout popular western music. It's the 1-4-5 progression. If you're a musician, you know the one. If not, well, you've heard it. It goes something like this. Here's the thing about the 1-4-5. Think of that first chord as home. It sounds nice, it feels good, but then comes the next chord, and it takes you away from home, so to speak. And then there's the five chord. It's almost like asking a question. It feels incomplete somehow. And then it goes back to the first chord, and everything feels better, and the chord progression repeats. Now, Miles did not use common chord progressions for his songs. They were exploratory. They were a journey that never quite gets back to that one chord that our ears are craving so badly. Honestly, his life was the same way. In early September 1991, Miles checked into a hospital near his home in Santa Monica, where he proceeded to paint his last painting. It was composed of dark, ghostly figures, dripping blood, and, quote-unquote, his imminent demise. Not long after that, he went into a coma and spent several days on life support. On September 28, 1991, 
his life support was officially turned off, and Miles was pronounced dead. His death was attributed to the combined effects of a stroke, pneumonia, and respiratory failure. However, days later, when coroners did a more complete autopsy of the body, they found a drug in his system called AZT, which is used for the treatment of HIV-AIDS. Since his death, there's been some controversy whether or not Miles actually had AIDS, and it's quite possible, but has never been proven. Before Miles passed, he told a family friend, quote, The gods don't punish people by not giving them what they want. The gods punish people by giving them what they want, and then not giving them time. End quote. There's a whole lot of genius in Miles Davis. There's no doubt about that. But there weren't a whole lot of smiles. His life was filled with unapologetically terrible decisions, unshakable demons, and countless twists and turns that seemed more like jagged, sharp edges rather than turns. There's a kind of paradoxical aspect to Miles Davis. How can such a cold, complicated, and honestly not-so-cool person have made such cool and calming music? Well, to answer that question, I want to go back to the very first question I asked when I started the series. What exactly is cool? And what exactly makes someone or something cool? Cool is a word we say so often that we usually don't associate any meaning to it at all. In today's climate, it's usually just an affirmation. But when you're forced to really think about it, your mind can go in a million different directions. So I asked several people, family, friends, random people on the street to do just that, to really think about what the word means to them. So I hope you enjoy this short audio collage. And while you're listening, try and think about what cool means to you. Cool. Like what does cool mean to you? Intuitive. Imaginative. Unique. It's just usually a word that I used to describe or like either something that I like or when someone tells me about something that they like and I agree, I say, oh yeah, that's cool. I don't know. What's your definition of cool? Kindness. <laughs> so I think it's someone that's just doing their own thing and they make it work. 100%. 100%. Just like somebody who's just going to start a trend or something and then people follow it. Like if it happens with music, it happens with fashion. That person to me is the coolest motherfucker. Like that's what I want to be. I think cool. Cool is just going with the breeze. Uh, uh. That's awesome. I love it. I got cool. So you got cool. I got, I got three now. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, from community, right? Uh, so cool, just literally like not, you know, not hot. Um, and then cool, like an expression, cool, uh, meaning that's all right. That, you know, we'll work, we'll work with that. Not great, not horrible. And then, then, then there's cool, you know, when it's like when something's actually awesome. So 
those are, those would be my three. What does cool mean to you? Uh, me? <laughs> nice. Like, if someone's cool, it's the eye of the beholder, and whatever that person is into is... I like people who are into what they're into. Fair. You know? Like, if you're really into the Dewey Decimal System and you're a kick-ass librarian, I vibe with you. So, uh, that's cool to me. What does cool mean to me? Cool is being true to yourself. Um... You know, just having that self-confidence that allows you to be yourself. I think that's always been cool. That's what uh, cool is to me. What are some things you think of when you think of the word cool? Not caring about other people's opinions. Unless you mean, like, actual items. <laughs> what, what does cool mean to you? Cool means someone that uh, uh, is familiar with what's going on at this time. Like, uh, let's say, uh, blues in, blues cool. Or jazz is in right now, jazz is cool. Uh, he's a cool guy, he's sort of hip on the, what's going on at this time. It's what, if, you, if you're, if they're, if they're a, if the person or thing is cool, like Seattle Records on the Ave is cool right now, but it might not be next week. Because cool is a, see cool is, a, it's either hot, Cool or cold, and cool is right where it's at. That's my definition. I think I got a good one, am I right? Uh, cool is when you don't harm anyone. That's it, including yourself. Oh boy. I think of someone who's cool as somebody who's humble, but yet successful and cool. But they don't necessarily know it. It involves really being dedicated to your craft, first of all, and that being musically about the music, not about the idea of the music or the atmosphere of the music. It's like it actually has to be the music. Um, cool, man. Yeah, cool is when you can sacrifice your cool to create the best work. You can be vulnerable. You can um, look silly. You can humble yourself and be, you know, you. Humility, you can embrace that, you know, I could, I could really respect, you know, J. Cole's route of uh, really uh, surrendering himself as a human being as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, keeping this reverence of cool that, uh, you know, people may assume that he's after or something like that. But, you know, being close to nature is cool, um, you know, close to God, being able to be honest, uh, taking care of your family is cool. Um, you know, uh, being a good role model for kids is cool. Um, you know, sitting down eating dinner with your family is cool. You know what I'm saying? Like life, uh, valuing things that that uh, support longevity is cool. A good diet, healthy sleep. You know what I'm saying? Uh, that's cool to me. And and to be able to to be around um, people that you call your friends and family, and they share your vision and support you. Uh, because they see how dedicated you are to your craft, you know? To me, it, it definitely just means the Fonz. Definitely the Fonz. I think I like weird-looking birds. 
Nice. Um, and like weird looking fish. Fish actually probably more than birds. I think like fish are really cool. But like if you want like a dictionary definition of cool instead of that, um, I don't know, just like it's kind of hard to define cool without using cool in the sense that defines it. But so I'm just gonna say a uh, fish, interesting fish. Music Legends is extremely cool. <laughs> I'll tell you. Are you recording this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's not cool, which Ooh. is, what's not cool is cool. K-E-W-L. That's not cool. That's not cool. Not cool. That is not harboring. Cool. That is like flashing back to like when I was 13 years old on the internet. Things that stand out that aren't, aren't typical. Um like cutting edge type things or like trends, you start to see a trend before it actually emerges. And then you become like an early adopter before other people. As long as the thing doesn't end up sucking, like a car. <laughs> um, I don't, aesthetically cool, like album covers. I think a lot of times I buy al album covers based on the cover because they look cool, even if I haven't heard it. Um, so, aesthetics. <laughs> okay, what do I think cool is right now? As of uh, July 20... 28th? 28, 2023. Um, you're pretty fucking cool. I just started skateboarding about a year ago. So if you can do power slides and um, you wear like uh, monochrome outfits while you skateboard, like, you know, maybe a jumpsuit or something like that, and you got some shoes that are like bright maybe bright orange bright blue bright red you're the shit that's all you need you'll impress me i'll fall in love with you at the skate park and i'll admire you you're fucking cool i think it means taking risks and challenging yourself not just for the purpose of like trying to find your identity but um i think that it always involves that element you know because it should feel fresh and um, at times, it should feel uncomfortable. Uh, not always provocative, but, um, you know, it's you're exploring. Whether that's something that's like a personality, whether it's an adventure, whether it's something new. But I think it's just stepping out of your comfort zone and owning that. And manifesting, transforming through all of what is new, what's fresh, and what's original, and what's cool. So I used to think someone was cool if they were able to pretend not to care about anything and not show any emotion. But now I think someone's cool who isn't afraid to express their true personality, their passions, and the things they deeply care about, even if people think it's weird. I think cool means to me a free spirit, somebody who is in touch with themselves, can bring the light out of other people and enjoy being in themselves. Well, somebody who is righteous, respectful, aware of the other people around them in their surroundings, and able to give themselves in difficult situations. That's what I think cool is. Um, I don't know. I think what 
it's what makes a person different from everyone, you know? Everyone's gonna have their own opinion of cool, you know? Yep. Uh, some people, like my friend, she thinks a lot of stuff is cool, and I'm like, that's weird. But to you, it's cool. That's I support that, you know? Um, but yeah, it's like music taste. A lot of people, you know, just a lot of genres, a lot of... To each their own. Yeah, exactly. I think about ice cream, shave ice, and um, Justin Bieber. I feel like it's just kind of like a vibe. <laughs> it's an unexplainable vibe, but you know when you see it. <laughs> to me, cool is simple. Cool is confidence. Cool is timeless. Cool is creativity. Cool is complicated. And most importantly, cool is innately and purely human. I'll be honest. Miles Davis was easily the most challenging and complicated music legend that I've covered on this podcast. It would have been so much easier just to read a little bit about his story and say, you know what, screw this guy, he's just another scumbag, and write him off as just another one of the millions of scumbags in the music industry. And in a lot of ways, I do agree, Miles Davis should be cancelled. But there was something I found very human about his story, his struggle. It's unfortunate, but I firmly believe nothing and no one is too simple to be just cancelled. Separating the art and the artist is hard for me. When I listen to the music of Miles Davis, I can't help but think about the atrocities he created over the course of his life, and vice versa. When I think about the horrors and struggles of his life, I can't help but think about the beautiful music he created. So I guess that's all just to say that next time you're listening to Miles Davis, just remember one thing. Nothing and no one is that simple. There's a lot of music legends out there that are absolute monsters, and Miles Davis is one of them. But there's always more than what meets the eye. I don't make this show and tell these stories to valorize Miles' bad decisions. I do it to show the deeper story. To show that nothing is just black and white. These music legends are truly legendary. But at the end of the day, they're human. To me, the ultimate definition of the word cool is to be human. And to be human is to truly see and understand all sides of the legend. The good, the bad, and the music. That's it. Thank you all so, 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 so much for listening. As always, this episode of Music Legends was written and produced by me, Willie Miller. Thanks to everyone who contributed to the audio collage and gave their definition of what cool means. I hope it gave you some insight and some space to think about what cool means to you. I don't know about you, but I thought it was super interesting hearing the same themes pop up in so many people's answers, but also a little different for everyone. 
big thanks to all my friends and family who've listened to me blabber on about narrative structure, music theory, modal jazz, and Miles Davis for the last three years making this season of Music Legends. Thanks for your input. Thanks for your support. Thanks for everything. Same to literally every single one of you listening to this. I appreciate you more than you realize. Most importantly, thanks to my mom for being my biggest creative supporter. And, quite honestly, the coolest person I've ever met. I can't overstate how much I wish she could have heard these last couple episodes, but I'm just glad that they're out finally in the ether for the world to enjoy. <sighs> All right. I want to tell y'all real quick about a few links I'm going to put in the show notes for today's episode uh, for those of you who like to dive a little bit deeper. And then I have some big news. So first up in today's show notes is one of the most infamous interviews with Miles Davis. This took place during his stay in Munich in 1988 on his world tour. He draws and doodles on a sketch pad while answering the questions. It's honestly pretty cool. I highly recommend watching it. I think it gives a great look into the almost zen state of mind of Miles Davis in those last few years. I'm also putting in an interview with Joe Gelbert. This is where I sourced a lot of the information about her and Miles' affair during those last few years. I think this interview would be a great read for anyone interested in learning a little bit more about Joe Gelbert's perspective on their relationship and how visual art was really inspiring Miles at that point of his life. Okay, I have some big news. I, I don't know about big news, but basically, I want to create something new. I'm going to start a YouTube channel, which I'm super excited about. I don't exactly know what I'm going to do. I have a few ideas floating around. Uh, I'll try all of them, but that also means I won't have as much time to dedicate to music legends. This is why I'm going to be stepping away from this format of music legends, at least for a little bit. I'll be switching to a more interview-based format for the time being. So you can expect to see episodes fairly regularly. As for when to expect a new deep dive like this season, well, it might be a while. But I really enjoyed this format, and will definitely return to it at some point. In fact, I already have a whole bunch of ideas in the works that you might just see in season three. All right, y'all. Well, stay cool. Peace.